0: look like to be a grace-filled community? What does it feel like? What should people experience when they walk in? And how do we grow in this as a church? Because the truth is, we're not there. We're not there yet. And the, with grace, it's something that we keep growing into. More As we experience God's grace for us, it's something that we keep growing more and more uh, into receiving. So a few years ago, we had this email sent into the church office. I'm not, I'm not sure how many years ago, but it was a couple of years ago, I think. And it gives you an insight of what we hope it should feel like for somebody to come into our community. If only this was the experience every time. I would absolutely love this. It just said this, Hi. I found myself in your evening service tonight, and it was the last place I expected to be, so it came as somewhat of a surprise. I just wanted to drop you a quick line and say thank you. Everyone was so welcoming, and in addition to the lovely smiling drink service who sorted me out with a cup of tea, four separate people made the effort to speak to me, asked me my name, and genuinely showed an interest in me. They all asked me how I was and took time to listen to me. I felt so welcome and so safe. I was invited to share what I wanted to about my story and my journey, but none of them pressed me and backed off when I seemed fragile. I shared some of my fears without any sense of judgment or condemnation at all, and felt from each of them that they actually gave a rude word. Um, Fill it in yourself. Honestly. I can't tell you how grateful I am to have walked in on your community tonight. It was the first time I dared to go to church in about five years, and I came away much less traumatized than I was afraid I might. If you were a restaurant and I was a mystery customer, you would all be getting a staff night out and a special certificate to put up on the wall. Unfortunately, you're not a restaurant, and the church hasn't resorted to sending in mystery worshippers to get ratings yet, as far as I'm aware. That's not quite true, actually. Uh... So hopefully the warm, fuzzy feelings that come from knowing you did well will be enough anyway, thank you. Isn't that an amazing email? And essentially, what I hope that you take away from this evening is that grace-filled people create grace-filled communities. Grace-filled people create grace-filled communities. Now, let's just be honest. Talking about the concept of grace is much easier than actually being graceful or grace-filled. The uncomfortable truth is that Christians in our society are not generally known for being graceful. When you stop somebody and you say, what's the first thing that you think about when you think about a Christian? Grace, number one, not generally. And if you talk to people who seem to be miles away from God, many tend to admire Jesus, but they often can't stand his followers. It's true, isn't it? When I first met my my wife, Jen, well done me. Um, Not so well done her, unfortunately. But one of her massive objections to the Christian faith was Christians. And in her own words, she she writes this. I thought Christians were boring, judgmental, rigid, hypocritical, and annoyingly self-righteous. She's not holding any punches, is she? And then she goes, let me just elaborate. Okay, you see, uh, I think, let's just stop there, darling. Um, I didn't think they were any worse than anyone else. Who was I to judge? But I just thought that they thought that they were better than the rest of us, or at least pretended to be. And it was this perceived double standard that I loathed. Do you know what? I'm sure Jen's not alone in feeling that in this room this evening. Probably a few of you have felt that. So however, Jesus has this intriguing and mysterious attractive pull on people. But many Christians on the other hand seem to create a repelling force. That really bothers me. That really bothers me and I'm sure it bothers many of you as well. Luckily this issue of the perceived religious barriers to others finding God is not only a problem that we have now but it's been there for 2000 years. In Jesus' day, people felt this magnetic attraction towards Jesus. I was speaking about the feeding of the 5,000 or the 15,000 last week. And if you remember, there was this whole group of people that went into the desert just to hear Jesus because he was so captivating. They were there all day to the point where they'd forgotten their food. There was this draw towards Jesus, but they were repelled and put off by the condemning religious leaders called the Pharisees. In fact, Luke tells us, he says this in Luke 15, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Everybody, everybody wanted to be near him. So what do you do you do to discredit somebody? They do it in politics nowadays. The religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees called Jesus a glutton, a drunk, a friend of sinners, they just tried to undermine him at every step, mainly because Jesus had this enormous life-giving impact on so many, that they couldn't explain it and it didn't fit into their behaviour-orientated view of a relationship with God. Maybe the reason people today are drawn to Jesus but not to his followers is because many Christians are not like Jesus in this regard. And ultimately, that's because we don't really see what Jesus sees in other people. We don't necessarily see the gold. We Christians can be subtly become pharisaical without even realising it. Do you know what? It's frightening. It's frightening. Every now and then, we, myself, I can catch myself judging somebody or some situation. You know, you're like, oh, and then suddenly, it's only when you really sit down and you start to talk to somebody and they begin to open up your, their lives that you go, Oh my goodness, you've had this to deal with. You've had this going on. I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on in your life, and yet I came across as this. So that is the last thing that we want to be. How do we continue to grow more like Jesus while avoiding drifting into being or becoming a Pharisee? Firstly, we have to recognize the danger and have a good, honest look at ourselves here's a good test. Ultimately, the impact we have on the people around us will tell us if we're more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees. In Luke 6, verse 40, it says, everyone who's fully trained will be like their teacher. Or in Luke six forty four, it says, you will know them by their fruit. What is our fruit? As you look at your life, what is the fruit? Are people seeing Jesus in you? Are they captivated by the person of Jesus in your life? If, if it's true the Holy Spirit comes to live in us and Jesus becomes a part of us, then when people look at, look at the followers of Jesus, they should, they should see Jesus in us. What did Jesus do and, and convey that contrasted so sharply with the Pharisees? How did he treat people? What was he thinking and feeling? What was his attitude? What did he say? What did he do? And throughout this series, we are going to try to see people through the eyes of Jesus. As we learn from Jesus' encounters and we look at the scriptures, I want you to wrestle with this question, am I more like Jesus or more like a Pharisee to the people around me? And do you know what? The answer may not be quite as black and white as you think. Do you know what? I I know in my own life, it changes moment by moment and day by day can have an interaction, and you come away from it. It's only when you begin to reflect on it with Jesus, it's like, oh, man, what an idiot. <laughs> you have those moments. And then in other times, you can be completely grace-filled and graceful. Now, I don't know whether any of you have ever seen Rembrandt's masterpiece, The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's a beautiful painting. And if you haven't, it should just come up on the screen behind me. And it depicts this moving... Um, seen in Jesus' parable, Luke 15, where we're filled with compassion. The father runs towards his wayward son. So the son, you know, many of you will know the parable, but the son's been away. He's, he's asked for his inheritance earlier. He's frittered it. He's squandered it. And, um, and, they, and it uses this phrase, on loose living. It's like, we don't really use that very much nowadays. And then he comes back begging for mercy. And in this picture, You've got this beautiful picture of the son, and there's the father. And um, there's the older brother in red. And actually red goes to kind of denote riches during that time. And if you look a bit more at the painting, it's really, there's a whole load of stuff actually, I could get really sidetracked here. But um, about, about the hands of the father being over the son, and just that, that kind of intimacy uh, of, what's, of what's going on here. And the father embraced him just saying this, my son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And Jesus paints this beautiful priceless picture in answer to religious people's complaint that he welcomes sinners. It's a picture of grace. It's a beautiful picture of grace. The painting's now worth a fortune. Now, just imagine again, if one day you visit the museum where it's housed, And there, as you're kind of going around the back after having been in the museum, there in the back alley skip, you discover Rembrandt's masterpiece, but it's hardly recognisable. It's covered in mud and dirt, it's stained, and the canvas has been completely torn. You wouldn't recognise it at all, except you notice the famous hand of the father on the ragged son's back. How would you treat the painting? Would you treat it like rubbish? It's covered in mud, it's stained, and it's torn. Is it worthless? Do you treat it like it's worthless? Or would you treat it like a nearly priceless masterpiece that needs to be handled with care and restored? I'm guessing all of us could see past the mud and even the damage to recognise the immense value of this beautiful painting, this one-of-a-kind work of art, simply because it was created by Rembrandt's own hand. We wouldn't try and clean it up ourselves, would we? we? That would be stupid. We'd bring it to a master who could delicately restore it to its original condition. So why do we struggle to treat people like the immensely valuable, one-of-a-kind masterpiece God created with his own hand? Why is it when we look at people so often, we don't see them as a masterpiece? Do you know what? Every single life is precious. We've been talking about this series for those yet to come. At the heart of it is this belief that every single person is unique. They're made in the image of God. They're made by God and they are valuable. They are gold. And when we look at them and when we sit down with them and when we hear every person's story, what would it be like to look with the eyes of Jesus upon those people? Is that how we look at people? Because I know so often it's not. As we look at the life and interactions of Jesus with very, do you know what, sin-stained, messed up, people who haven't got it all together, people, it becomes evident that Jesus sees something worth dying for in all of the people that he encountered. Jesus could see past the mud to the masterpiece that God wanted to restore. What do you see most when you encounter people whose lives are far from Jesus? What do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see the mud or do you see the masterpiece? So often when we look in the mirror for ourselves, what is it that we're looking at? This broken part of us, this bit that's not all together? Or are we seeing what God's put in us? Do you know what? What you focus on determines who you become and the impact that you have on people around you. The Pharisees primarily focused on on the mud of sin that covered people's lives who were far from God. They prided themselves in mud avoidance. They fixated on mud. They tried to clean the mud off others with their own dirt and it didn't work then and it doesn't work now. Jesus was completely different. Jesus demonstrated a spiritual vision that he wants to impart to us to see the masterpiece that he sees in us and to renovate us to become people whose hearts reflect what God sees under even the most sin-stained life. There's this incredible passage in Ephesians 2. It's one of my favourite passages, verse 4 to 7, that I just want to look at. And it starts like this. It says, but because of his great love for us, it's a great start, isn't it? Because of his great love for every single one of us, for all of us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. That means when we were dead in our mess, in our sin, in our mud. It is by grace that you have been saved, it is by grace that all of us have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Notice what this says. When we were all dead spiritually, damaged, sin-stained, muddied paintings left in the skip, we so easily forget that that's where we've gone. And what happens is what what point does it become that we suddenly move from being the son in front of the father on their knees? Do you notice in that that it's almost like his hair's gone? It's probably been shaved off because it's got knits and stuff in it, and he's there. That what there's one shoe on and there's one shoe off, in this utterly broken state. And then there's this, it goes on in the painting, but then you move to see the older brother who's standing on at the side looking in on this picture. So often what happens is we start by realising that we're saved by grace and then in the next moment we turn around and suddenly we've become the judgmental one at the side. I think sometimes the older brother gets a bad rap. It must have been an incredibly difficult situation. It is by grace that we've been saved. If we ever, ever forget that, we lose the whole point. It is by grace that you've been saved. So that none can boast. We can't boast. We're not better than anybody else. Grace is this amazing levelling. It levels the field. None of us brought ourselves back to life spiritually, nor can we clean ourselves up and restore ourselves into what God intended without God's help. It's all, it's him. But by his grace, this is one of the things that I learned, probably the only thing from my RE before I was 16. Grace is when God gives us the things we don't deserve. It's just something that's gone into my mind, because <laughs> I, rep- re- I think we repeated it every lesson, and then we watched The Mission for the rest of it, if any of you have seen that film. That was my RE. But grace is when God gives us the things we don't deserve. At the heart of it is undeserved favour. That the Lord pours His favor upon us and loving kindness offered freely, that we can be restored. And notice the words describing God's heart His great love for you, for me, for those utterly lost and broken and vulnerable, even for those who look like they've got it all together. We'll come across people and they look like they've got it all sorted. As we will see, love, kindness, and mercy flowed liberally from Jesus' life. But the Pharisees' well was dry when it came to mercy. Paul continues, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word translated masterpiece or workmanship or handiwork, it's, a, it's translated differently in the different versions of the, um, of the Bible, is the Greek word poema, from which we get the word poem. With this poem, what Paul is saying is that we're a work of art, the work of a master, master artist. Do you realise that you're God's masterpiece, his work of art, by grace you're saved? A person living in Jesus' time would hear the Greek word sozo, translated saved, and often we think of it as something so narrow. It was actually so much more in the original language. And think of it being carried to safety, made whole or restored, restored to the original condition. It's this picture of restoration. We talk about restoring the city. What we're talking about is people being saved, this picture of being restored to everything that God has. It's the masterpiece It's the masterpiece that God has. It's when we sit with people and we begin to see their amazing gifts and their talents and what God has put in them and birthed in them. We begin to recognise that, the gold that we see in them. God saves us. He restores us to right relationship with himself. He makes us secure by adopting us as his own children children of the living God, and he begins a lifelong process to restore us, this original work of art imagined before we were born. It's mind-blowing when you stop and think about it, is that God had it all there. He knew what he was doing in the womb, that he knew every hair on your head. It's even more amazing is that God sees it as already completed. He already sees us raised with Christ and seated with him, Ephesians 2 verse 6. Raised you to the heavenly places. Grace tells you that all God needs is your faith, giving yourself back in trust to your Creator, giving Him permission to renovate and restore and bring to life this masterpiece within you. It's true for all human beings. God pictures you as someone more awesome and wonderful than your imagination has ever dreamed. Do you see yourself like God does as a living work of art that he's wanting to restore to its full value? Do you see others that way? Because what you see matters. The way that you look at things matters. So often what we need is new lenses in our spiritual glasses. I love this picture that when God comes to live in us, that he gives us spiritual glasses and their lenses, and it's this picture of seeing with the eyes of Jesus. Could you imagine if we truly saw with Jesus' eyes how different life would look, how different people would look? Our vision as a church is to restore the city, to bring to life the parts and the people that have been dead and broken and restore them back to fullness. Not because we're great, because Jesus is. And that's what he's in the business of. But we must become more like Jesus than the Pharisees, and that starts with the right attitude of heart, the right lenses in our spiritual glasses. Jesus must have pictured what he created people to be, and that a vision affected how he felt about them. I'm sure those he encountered picked up on his attitude towards them. And that's probably why so many messed up people who hadn't got it all together flocked towards him. In his eyes, they saw this glimmer of hope for who they were meant to be. I'm convinced that people intuitively pick up on our attitude towards them. Do you think that's true? I think it's true. Are we for people at the heart of it? Are we really for people or are we actually a little bit against them? Do we truly believe that they have immense value and worth to God? Or are we secretly disgusted, bothered, shocked, judgmental, and wanting to fix them quickly? I've come to believe that many Christians repel those who don't follow Jesus because we don't share God's heart for them. That we don't see them with the eyes of Jesus. Why is that? If we're not careful that we have a gospel of mud management, we focus only on the mud... A gospel of restoration sees past the mud to the vision of the masterpiece. It sees to what could be. It's with the eyes of faith of what God wants to do. Which gospel we hold affects how we actually feel about ourselves and the people around us. Going back to our an- analogy of the Rembrandt, when a fine master, sorry, when master fine art restorers come to a work of art which requires restoring, they don't they don't just get a cloth out and they get a bit of soapy water. I've got this Rembrandt, and I'm suddenly like, you know what, I'm just gonna have a little go at it. Gonna have a little rub and see if I can bring it back to life. Stupid. I probably would, actually. Um, Not known for my skills. Had a go at putting up a trampoline this afternoon. Put the cover on backwards. What a legend. Anyway, I was talking about a fine art restorer. There 's just a, an image of what that might that person looks like. What happens is they've got these they 've got these pretty cool glasses on that I might be wearing next time I come. I think it's a it's a different look, but um strong maybe the word they painstakingly take their time they wear these special spectacles that show them the intricate detail of the painting they remove very slowly one piece of dirt at a time with the right process so as to not um, destroy the original painting underneath then they replace and they begin to renew the original colors the definition that makes the painting stand out to be marveled at it takes time it takes specific spectacles devotion patience and immense care that's what people are worth We are not in the quick fix business. I wish we were sometimes. It's just like, bang, and then somebody's fixed. Do you know what? We walk with people through the years. And we see this beautiful thing that God begins to do as their hearts begin to change bit by bit by bit. And they break their walls down and God's love begins to pour into them and his grace. And then they begin to experience his grace. And then out of that grace, they begin to realise, do you know what? I could give this grace as well. It does little good to call ourselves followers of Jesus if our lives and our influence don't reflect Jesus's life. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these. John 14, God fully intends your life to have the same influence on the world around you as Jesus did. We're his representatives, we're his ambassadors. We are his hands and feet. We've been sent, we're a sent people. We are God's workmanship, his handiwork, his poem. That was the language, poema, poem. We're his poem, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance for us to do. He's already got things for us to do. He's like, are you going to step into those things? All he needs is faith. You growing to trust his leadership more and more and more. I believe that when we truly understand the overwhelming grace that's been shown to us, it changes everything. It changes the way that we look at life. It is genuinely like putting on a different pair of glasses. This whole new world opens up and the colours are incredibly vivid. And you begin to look at people and you see, oh, you are the most amazing person. And then what happens is, you don't just stop there, it's that you begin to speak words of life over people into their hearts. You're like, do you know that God has put this in you? Do you know that this is what God has for you? Do you begin to speak kind of prophetically over people and the words of encouragement of the Lord over them? And then they begin to open up and they're like, and it's not something that's fake. It's not just a generically nice word that I'm just going to be a nice person. It's that God begins to speak to you about people and you begin to see what they're amazing at and you, could, you begin to thank the Lord for them. You're like, Thank the Lord for this person, they're amazing. Thank you for what you bring. In the vineyard we have a phrase, come as you are, just don't stay as you are. What that means is anybody's welcome to come along, no matter what they believe, what they've done, who they are. Someone invites them and hopefully they sense the presence of God within our environments. We want them to taste and see that the Lord is good. We also want them, as we do for ourselves we we're, we're a work in progress all of us to be restored to fullness people should be attracted to the community in the way that we love one another they should be welcomed and accepted and loved they should be embraced by us they may well never have encountered jesus before or really know anything about him at all they might think i don't know why i'm here or how i got here fantastic if that is the case we're doing our job if you're here this evening you've got no idea why you're here you're so welcome because I believe that God wants to meet you. We shouldn't expect people to have it all sorted before they come. Every word we speak has the power to give a little bit of life to people or to destroy a little bit of their spirit. Words are incredibly subtle, aren't they? Like little jellyfish stings. Like, ow, ow. They, They can just hurt a little bit when the tentacles brush against your skin, but the poison and the discomfort lasts long afterwards and makes you nervous to get back in the sea again. We have the ability to offer acceptance, love and hope. And we also have the ability to judge, condemn and wound. The the Apostle Paul says that we're to accept one another. What exactly do we do when we accept someone? It's a remarkable action. And do you know what? It's really difficult to define, yet unmistakable when we experience it. To accept people is really simple. It is to be for them. It's to be for them. We welcome them to come in, to be a part with us. We make space for them. It's to recognize that it is a very, very good thing that this person is alive. And we long for the best for them. It does not, of course, mean to approve of everything that they do. It means to continue to want what is best for their souls no matter what they do. No matter what they do. As I finish this evening, let's just remind ourselves of this. Grace-filled people create grace-filled communities. It sounds really obvious, but it's really powerful. Grace changes everything. As we glimpse the depth of God's grace for us, we begin to view everybody else differently. And as a masterpiece waiting to be restored to fullness, we receive new spiritual glasses. Grace-filled community means trying to see people through the eyes of Jesus, what do you see when you look in the mirror and at others? Do you see the mud? Or do you see the masterpiece God wants to restore? Why don't we stand?